You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Hello, and welcome to part two of our three-part series on asthma. In case you didn't tune into part one, we discussed the symptoms and triggers of asthma, how asthma is diagnosed, and the tests used by doctors to do so. You can definitely listen to today's episode without hearing part one, but I really would suggest checking it out so you have a better foundation to understanding asthma. It's episode seven, and I'll make sure to link it in the show notes. Today, in part two, we're going to talk about the different severities of asthma and the types of asthma. This episode really opened up my eyes on seeing how much asthma can truly impact someone's life beyond just breathing and how important it is to know what type of asthma you have because knowing your asthma is key to understanding the different ways it can be treated, which before getting ahead of myself will be part three of this series. So stay tuned for that. Before we jump in, I want to credit Dr. Jessica Hui for helping us research all of the information that you're about to hear. So now let's get to it. Hi, Courtney. Are you ready for another asthma episode? It feels like asthma awareness month and allergy awareness month. Both of them just kind of flew by and I'm um, excited to keep this conversation going because we know that it's not just important during these awareness months, but it's important all year long. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, these awareness months are really important for us to talk about these topics in the public and to really draw awareness. But I do know that these are topics that affect our community all year round. So we definitely need to keep this conversation going. Yeah, exactly. So today uh, we're going back to asthma and we're going to be talking about two different topics. We're going to be talking about asthma severity and the different types of asthma. You know, I never realized there were so many different types of asthma and levels of severity. So I'm excited to know more about this since it's all pretty new to me. Uh, Why don't we start with the severity? So when someone has a diagnosis of asthma, how do they know if they have mild asthma or more severe asthma? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. When we talk about severity, you're right. We use terms like mild asthma, moderate asthma, or severe asthma. And when we're assessing someone's asthma severity, we're looking at several things. A lot is based on what you tell us at your visit and on how your asthma has been doing since you were last seen. So we ask you several questions at your visit that help us determine where your severity level is. We base it on your weekly and daily symptoms. If you have any limitations in your everyday life and how often you need your quick relief inhaler is another Another component that is really helpful. And we also use the in-office pulmonary function testing. That's something that we discussed in part one of this asthma series. And all of this information put together helps us determine what your asthma severity level is. That sounds like a lot of things you're looking at. Do you have a set of questions that you use to determine how asthma is impacting a patient's everyday life? Yeah, and there are actually questionnaires that have been validated, which your allergist might ask you to fill out that touch on a lot of these components. Questions that you might see on these questionnaires include, 
Are you waking up in the middle of the night from your asthma? How often are you needing to use your quick relief medication? Is it once a day, once a week, twice a week? Does your asthma interfere with your normal activity? Have you needed to go to the emergency room for your asthma and given medications? These are all important questions that help us assess your asthma control and likely your doctor will ask you at every visit. Okay, that's good to know. I've definitely had those questions asked. Um, I've never filled out a questionnaire, but I've been asked some of those questions, so that makes a lot of sense. Uh, There's a term that's come up a couple of times, and I feel like we should probably clarify it one more time before we continue. We did talk about it in part part one, but I think it would be great to just go over once again what a quick relief inhaler is. Sure, great point. Um, We'll be talking about quick relief inhaler a lot during this episode, so it's good to refresh our memories. So the quick relief inhaler, there's actually a lot of different names used depending on the country you live in, but you might albuterol, salbutamol, leave albuterol, and then there are all the other brand names that come into play. So these medications help, they're called actually short-acting bronchodilators, and they help to loosen the muscles around the airways. And they act quickly to help open up your airways, which is why we call them quick relief inhalers. That's good to know. I think it's always good to get a refresher. I was just remembering that, actually, you know, a lot of these questions that you ask, you actually asked me just like in conversation the first time we met in DC and I was just thinking about how I was like wow she knows a lot about me but then it's really that I'm pretty much a clear I was at least a clear-cut case of uncontrolled asthma and I've been on a preventative for almost a year and this spring my asthma was way better than last year so if any of those questions like talk to you maybe you should definitely think about talking to your allergist yeah yeah, no, definitely. I, I didn't realize that I that we really ended up talking about a lot of a uh, lot of stuff during our time in D.C. two years ago, and that's so great. I'm so happy to hear that this season was better for you, and that I turned into doctor mode and asked you all those questions <laughs> randomly as we're walking around different halls in D.C. But. So having uncontrolled asthma is not good in so many ways. First, the way that it makes you feel as you know you have experienced. And second, it is also so dangerous because if you get sick with a cold, for example, then you'll get even more sick than if your asthma had been controlled. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by dangerous if it isn't controlled? Yeah, so it's it's a really important point. So what I mean by this is that if you are needing your quick relief medication often, then that means that there is some underlying inflammation in your airways. So the way that I explain it to my patients is that the passageway that you have in your breathing tubes to allow air in and out is already too small because of the inflammation. And then when you get sick, you get more inflammation in there and that can cause your asthma to flare and can lead to an acute attack and you know regardless you'll have symptoms but what i mean by acute attack is that the airway will be so tight that you'll probably end up in the emergency room oh gosh okay that makes a lot of sense and that's really important to note so just to clarify the fact that i needed to use my quick relief inhaler often was a sign that 
My breathing tubes are always inflamed to some degree, so if I got sick, I would experience even more inflammation, which would worsen my asthma symptoms, and then that would potentially lead to severe attack, and that's how people get hospitalized. Yep, that's it. Just to clarify that it doesn't just apply to getting sick. It's also true if you're around a trigger. For example, if you're allergic to cats and your asthma isn't controlled, and then you encounter one, um, the muscles around your breathing tubes would get irritated by the cat, which would cause them to constrict. And normally, if you didn't have inflammation in your airways, you might just get a little tight and be fine with your quick relief inhaler. But if you're uncontrolled and you have inflammation in your airways, that little bit of muscle tightening could be enough to set you off into severe symptoms where your quick relief medication just didn't feel like it was working well enough. That's really interesting. You know, it makes me think of this show that I recently watched called Show Me a Hero. It's an HBO show. And um, there was, in the first episode, there was this one character who was always using his quick relief inhaler and not to freak anyone out, but I turned to my husband and I was like, that guy has uncontrolled asthma and I bet you he's gonna die of an asthma attack in this show. And unfortunately, I was right in that assumption. And the thing was that the character was a boy who was living in low-income housing in New York in the 1980s. And no one around him knew what to do to help him. And what's so awful is that, like, these stories still happen 30 years later. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That just gave me chills. Unfortunately, it's a part of the reason that 10 people still die of asthma a day, a day in this country. And... It just shows us that we have a lot more to do. I actually have patients who live in low-income housing and they have mice, for example, and to get rid of the mice, they have cats. And then when I test them, when they come in to get tested for allergies, we find out that they're actually allergic to both. So they're allergic to the mice that they have because they live in poor housing. And then because they're trying to get rid of the mice, the cats that they bought, they're also allergic to. And it's causing, and that's what's causing their severe, severe asthma. So that show was totally accurate. And like you said, 30 years later, we are still in the same predicament and it's happening all over the U.S. and the world. And I'm just wondering, did that show make a point to talk about it and explain why that might have happened? Well, not really. So it it was a young adult who dies, and they focus more on the impact of his loss uh, and the young family he leaves behind. But it's clear that the living conditions are not ideal. And I think I may have been more in tune with the details of his living conditions and, you know, why asthma was an interesting thing for them to choose. Uh, Just because I've learned so much about health disparities in low-income housing in the last year or two. Yeah, that makes me so sad. It's really something that I'm trying to figure out here in New York City. How can I be a bigger advocate and help more people that are in these situations? And how can we really address and decrease the number of deaths in this country? And what do we need to do as a society? You know, I think part of it is getting the message out that if you have asthma, it is serious. And that if you have symptoms every day or even every week, that's not okay. It means that more than likely you're uncontrolled um, and you have uncontrolled asthma. So even though I can't change my patient's living conditions, I hope that I can help them with the right medications so that they're more controlled. And that's why asthma severity is so important to understand, right? Yeah, exactly. Definitely. And we can only classify asthma severity if we see the patients on a regular basis so they can ask them all those questions that we talked about earlier to figure out if they are uncontrolled. 
So can we talk, because I totally digress there on my pop culture reference, but it's serious, and I think that it was interesting to see a TV show talk about that to a certain degree. Uh, but back to our episode, uh, can we talk more about severity and the classification differences between asthma? Yeah, definitely. So first I want to mention that today we're really going to go through the general criteria for those patients who are five years of age and older. It's just a little different when we're looking at the younger age group, but not by that much. But I don't want to get into the nuances of how it's different if you're less than five years of age. So we'll kind of put up the chart that doctors use to classify asthma, and it'll be easy to understand once you're listening to this episode, and you'll be able to see the subtle differences for um, kids that are less than five years of age. But let's start with the classification of mild intermittent asthma. Is mild intermittent the lowest in severity then? Yes. Mild intermittent asthma is the lowest severity. And it means that you have mild symptoms and they're only intermittent and not persistent, which is the other category. So again, we'll start with mild intermittent. So if you're having mild intermittent asthma, that means that you're really well controlled and you have symptoms two or less times a week. So really less than two times a week, which means that you don't require quick relief inhaler more than twice a week. You're waking up in the middle of the night two or less times per month. So that's per month. And you're able to do your everyday activities without any disruption. So that means walking, um, walking fast, walking upstairs. And then when we check your spirometry results, your FEV1 is greater than 80%, which means it's essentially normal. Also, it means that you haven't needed any oral steroids during the last 12 months. For these patients, they just need a quick relief medication here and there. Just curious, why do you specifically ask about waking up? Because I know that that was personally a huge problem for me before I got on my controller medications. Yeah. So before I answer that, I just want to clarify the term controller medication. Since you brought it up, uh, a controller medication is something that helps control the underlying inflammation that you have on a daily basis. So these medications are something that you need to keep your breathing tubes clear. But in the next episode, we're dedicating it to asthma treatment. So there's more to come on that. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, that's good to pop that in there. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted, just because you mentioned controller medication. But now getting back to your other question about nighttime symptoms, asthma is actually very interesting in that it has a pattern or what we call our circadian rhythm, it affects people more at night and early in the morning if it's uncontrolled. That's why we always ask people about nighttime symptoms and early morning symptoms with their asthma. Huh, that's interesting because most of my symptoms actually do happen later at night or later in the day, <laughs> I should say. Uh, so do they know why that is? So the exact reason that asthma is worse during sleep are not really known, but there are explanations. And some of them include an increased exposure to allergens. For example, those people that are living in poor housing, they're sleeping with their allergens. And then cooling of the airways when we're sleeping at night might also be a reason. Being in a reclined position, different hormone secretions that follow that circadian pattern might be another reason that people have more issues late at night or early in the morning. And then sleep itself may even cause changes in bronchial function, we think. So there's lots of theories, but it's definitely something that affects asthmatics and we see it all the time. 
Wow. So it sounds like you're very vulnerable during your sleep. I'm seriously finding this so interesting and I could go on and on about myself and I don't want to be selfish here. So let's jump back into classifications. Is it basically that the higher the classifications go in severity, just the more symptoms the patient is experiencing? Yep, that's pretty much the case. You know, so let's keep talking about each category and you'll see the pattern. So next is something that we call mild persistent. So before it was mild intermittent, now it's mild persistent asthma. And mild persistent means that the person is having symptoms greater than two days a week, but not daily. And they're using their quick relief medication greater than two times a week, but again, not daily. And they're having nighttime awakenings, again, about one to two times a month. And their FEV1 is still normal and above 80% when tested in the office. So they still have a lot of similarities with the mild intermittent, but they're definitely using their quick relief medication more than two times a week. So the biggest difference for this category is that the symptoms are occurring more than two times a week, but not daily. Yep, exactly. And then moderate persistent asthmatics have symptoms daily and maybe using their inhaler daily for these symptoms and are waking up because of their asthma, probably around one time a week, but that could happen a little bit more or a little bit less. And then these patients will have a lower FEV1, which is reduced by 5% of what would be normal. Okay, so these asthma patients sound like they're using their inhaler every day, and they're probably waking up quite often. I used to wake up maybe almost every night and had to use my inhaler probably like 60% of the time, Uh, my quick rescue inhaler. So I, I wonder where I would fall because it didn't really impact my daily life necessarily. It would just kind of impact me at night. So when we talked about the the late night impacting your asthma, that was really interesting because I felt like that's kind of where my asthma lives. Yeah. So I think according to the criteria, you would be moderate persistent and, you know, everything, it all kind of goes, you have to look at the whole picture. So you're not constantly short of breath. You were just having symptoms mostly at night. And even though it was affecting you almost every night, you were still only using your inhaler maybe once a night or sometimes not even. So it was, it was definitely affecting you almost on a daily basis, but not to the point where it's constantly affecting you. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it sounds like you can kind of fall in between or it's like these categories are a little bit more flexible because I know that I would definitely not be anything close to like severe persistent. Right. Do we want to talk about that? Yeah. So what's severe persistent? So severe persistent, yeah, it gets it gets worse. And with severe persistent asthma patients, they're having symptoms throughout the day, not just once a day. They're using their inha- quick relief inhaler several times a day, which it was what it sounds like that person in the show that you were watching on HBO was doing. So even minor activity is setting this person's asthma off and they're waking up off Often, sometimes seven times a week um, and probably multiple times every night. When we look at their spirometry numbers, they're also very low. They're usually less than 60%. Yeah, it sounds like that's impacting your life every day. And I bet if if you have severe persistent asthma, you probably feel like tired and sick 
all the time, right? Yeah, they're they're extremely sick and they're constantly fighting to breathe. So it's really it's a very sad and it's very uh, it's a very urgent patient that you want to help immediately and make sure that they understand exactly how severe their asthma is and how important all of their medications are to be used on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, if you're battling to do something that you should naturally want to do, like breathe, it's just this is why asthma is so important to talk about because this is like you naturally that's one thing your body does is breathe right because you need that to survive but I couldn't imagine having to battle every second of the day just to get a breath in yeah and it is and honestly it's something that as a doctor like I said I worry about these patients when I see them in my clinic and some of them get used to that breathlessness and that feeling and so sometimes they don't even perceive their symptoms as being as bad as they really are so that's another issue that we really have to make sure that we're aware of and knowing when these patients are not really perceiving their symptoms. So it's definitely a a difficult group of people that we want to manage very closely. Would you change the medication based on the category that they fall into? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like we said, we won't go into medications today because we have a whole episode dedicated on it. But once you are in the persistent category, that's when you'll get put on a controller medication, a medication that helps keep your symptoms under control by reducing the inflammation that we mentioned before. So there's a lot of controller medications out there, and we'll definitely touch base on all of them in the next episode. Do we want to just jump into um, the types of asthma now? Yeah, I think it's a good time to talk about the different types of asthma. So some like classifying asthma as intrinsic asthma or extrinsic asthma. And what we mean by intrinsic asthma is that it's something in your body that's causing the inflammation. And extrinsic asthma means that you have something, some external factor that's causing it, like allergy, so allergic asthma that's causing that inflammation. So these are pretty broad categories and I don't those aren't the only categories that I personally use but you might hear them so I I figured I would mention them but I like to be more specific with my asthma descriptors now because we have so many different types of asthma that we've kind of pinpointed and it's just helpful for patients to understand all of their different factors that might cause their asthma. And so categories of asthma are allergic asthma, non-allergic asthma, eosinophilic asthma, exercise-induced asthma, cold-induced asthma, cough variant asthma, occupational asthma. And it's important to remember that one person can have more than one of these at the same time. Oh, wow. Okay. I really didn't realize there are that many types of asthma. So I've heard of things like allergic asthma, exercise-induced asthma. Uh, Why don't we go into a little bit more detail on more of these types? Let's start with eosinophilic asthma because I feel like that's something I just started to hear about. Yeah. So we've just recently identified this specific type of asthma in the last several years. And essentially, in this type of asthma, what we see is that patients have an increase in the number of a blood cell called eosinophils. Eosinophils are the cells that normally fight the parasites, right? Right. So if you're in an environment where you're around parasites, the numbers of eosinophils might go up and um, that might be an indicator that you're around a parasite and having to fight that. But when, um, when they're present at higher numbers and somebody has asthma, we see that that can cause a lot of inflammation and damage in their airways. And now we have medications that can reduce the number of eosinophils in someone's body 
in order to reduce this type of inflammation that occurs from the eosinophils. But again, we'll talk about the medications in our next episode. It's amazing how specific the medical field is getting, like eosinophilic asthma is just recently coming out. And I wonder, so there's a difference between eosinophilic asthma and allergic asthma then? Yes, exactly. So they are different and someone can actually have both. (laughs) So they can have allergic triggers, so they can have allergic asthma, and then they can also have high numbers of eosinophils, which might also be contributing to their asthma. So they can have both allergic asthma and eosinophilic asthma at the same time or they can have just eosinophilic asthma and not allergic asthma, or they can have allergic asthma and not have eosinophilic asthma. So if we take me as an example, because I like being the guinea pig, I have allergic asthma because I know I react around my triggers, which are like animals and pollens. How would someone know if they have eosinophilic asthma? Great question. So the way that we figure out eosinophilic asthma is we do a blood test looking for elevated numbers of eosinophils. And we do this when someone asthma doesn't seem like it's controlled by avoiding allergic triggers or if someone's having continuous symptoms and they're on on maximum therapy and they're still not controlled. It sounds to me like this diagnosis would come pretty late after eliminating a lot of possibilities. Well, not necessarily. It's actually something that we're now looking into pretty early. If there's any signs of moderate or severe asthma, it's something that your doctor will definitely look into and check if eosinophils are playing a role so that if the controller inhalers and the normal medications that we use don't help, we can start the more specialized medications that we need to start if you have eosinophilic asthma that's not being controlled by the inhalers. Wow, okay, that sounds interesting, and I feel like we'll probably go over that a little bit more when we talk about the medications, because that's when I first heard about eosinophilic asthma. Uh, Let's jump into occupational asthma, because that's something I haven't really heard of before either. Yeah, of course. So occupational asthma is asthma that is only present at work. So what this means is that it can be from an allergic reaction to something at work, like mold, for example, I've seen, or it can be from a chemical trigger, like ammonia, and the person can develop symptoms of asthma as a result of the irritant effects. So I just recently had a patient who was working at a salon, and she started to have shortness of breath and wheezing but only at work. And that was probably related to a chemical trigger. And so once she stopped working there, her symptoms resolved. Does this mean that when you leave work, the symptoms stop? Or do the symptoms persist all day? And once you stop work altogether, then your asthma gets better. So, well, it definitely gets worse as soon as the patient person gets to work. And then over time, if they're still at that job for long enough, the longer they go to work and the more often they go to work, the more inflammation they start getting in their airways because of that irritant that they're being exposed to. And the worse that that inflammation gets, then they're going to start experiencing symptoms even outside of work. But what we notice is that it always gets worse when they're at work. And it can be really hard to deal with because work is obviously a very important part of a person's life and becoming sensitive or allergic to something at work can result in a lot of issues, not only health, related issues, but also for the person's livelihood. So it can turn into a super stressful situation. It's just like, I feel like every second this episode goes on, I just can't believe the impacts that asthma has beyond just, you know, your breathing, but now asthma can impact your livelihood and your ability to work. And it just sounds like asthma 
can really affect you in so many places. And it's really a lot to worry about. Yeah, it really can be. And it is so debilitating for some people. And so, you know, figuring out a plan and maybe moving into a a different department at work can help sometimes, but it takes a lot of detective work and having a doctor by your side to help you figure out a better plan at work that can, that might be able to help. So I've written a lot of letters, talked to a lot of people's employers to figure out a plan so that the person doesn't have to quit working altogether. I love how involved you are at being an advocate for your patients. Um, I think it's a part of the job. And, you know, obviously, um, when someone comes in, you can tell they're stressed out or, you know, I, I, I've had so many patients cry because of this in my office that you just automatically become completely invested in the situation and wanting to try to help them figure a solution out. Yeah. I mean, breathing is just such an integral part of your day. So I can totally imagine how hard that is to see when a patient comes in and they're just struggling. Yeah. So talking about patients and uh, me being the guinea pig, I have a question for you that will kind of cover one type of asthma. I only have asthma issues when I run outside in the cold weather. So would that mean I have exercise-induced asthma or is there something else going on there? So actually, we're going to cover two topics with that because it sounds like in this case, what you have is cold-induced and exercise-induced asthma. So especially if when you're walking outside in the cold, you're fine, right? It's only when you're exercising in the cold. Yeah. And you're really like exercising, right? So what's interesting about exercise, well, what's interesting about cold air first is that can cause some people to have asthma just because of the cold air exposure. So when cold air hits your airways, it can cause the muscles to tighten up and that's cold air induced asthma. And so exercise induced asthma is also interesting because we think it results from the cooling of the airways. So when you exercise, your body tries to not get overheated and it cools the airways. But that cooling of the airways, just like with cold air induced asthma, can have that effect on people's muscles where they get irritated and tighten up. So that's essentially exercise induced asthma. So it seems like for you, your airways, just the general cooling of the airways when you're normally exercising, you're not really reacting to. But when you have that extra bit of cold, like the extra cold, cool air when you're running outside when it's cold, that's really what impacts that extra cooling effect is what what you're really reacting to. It's interesting because that's also something you talked about in the late night circadian rhythm about the cooling of the airways and how that might be an impact. Yeah. On the opposite spectrum then, is there heat-induced asthma? So we don't have a classification of heat-induced asthma, but I have a lot of patients who feel like it's harder to breathe on hot, humid days in particular. And I think it's from the heaviness and, and the moisture in the air. And I think most people in general feel like the air is thick. You know, you've heard that term, like the air feels thick on a hot and humid day. So even if they don't have asthma, I think a lot of people feel like it's harder to breathe on those days. Yeah, I know that like heavy, thick feeling. What about thunderstorms impacting asthma? 
I've read about that a couple of times. Can you talk about it? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a really interesting one. And it's been proposed that during a thunderstorm, pollen grains can actually absorb moisture and then burst into much smaller fragments. And those fragments can actually easily be dispersed in the wind more than regular pollen. And then they can also be breathed in more easily. And that can lead to asthma attacks. And that's for people who have not even normally experienced asthma attacks can actually show signs of asthma during these like thunderstorm asthma attacks. So that's one theory that's out there, but you know, there's definitely a lot of reports of people suffering during large storms. We just don't know the exact mechanism, but I think that that theory makes sense. That's crazy. I feel like this is also slowly becoming a special on weather and asthma. So let's move on to um, cough variant asthma. What is that? So cough variant asthma is also interesting. Um, It's where you really only have the symptom of cough with your symptoms and you're not having the symptoms of chest tightness or wheezing related to your asthma. So it's really just cough. And does the cough come out of nowhere? Well, it can be similar to other forms of asthma. You know, um, people can feel their chest tightness, wheezing, and they feel like it's coming out of nowhere. So it's the same thing, but it can, you know, cough variant asthma can be triggered by the same kind of things. It can be triggered by an allergy, can be triggered by a viral illness, for example, but you wouldn't see the classic wheezing and chest tightness associated with their symptoms. So that's where it gets a little bit confusing because people will only come in with the coughing and they won't say that they have that chest tightness and wheezing. You know, it's important to remember that coughing can be from so many different reasons. So we really have to look at the whole history, other things. And then when we've tried other things and they don't seem to be working, that's when we give asthma medications a try for these patients. And when it works, that's when we kind of come to that diagnosis of cough variant asthma. So is it tricky to treat someone who has more than one type of asthma? It's not necessarily tricky, but it is important to know all the triggers that someone can have. So treatment can vary in various ways. As I mentioned, for eosinophilic asthma, there's very specific new medications that help. And so it's really important to know that they have that eosinophilic form of asthma. Or with allergic asthma, it's important to know what their triggers are so that around the time they're exposed to their allergens, they can take certain, um, they can be ready with their medications. So, and then with exercise induced asthma, we have people use their quick relief inhaler 20 minutes before exercise so that the muscles are relaxed and they don't respond to that cooling effect. So those are just some of the examples on how treatment can vary depending on what type of asthma you have. But, you know, with acute symptoms, the treatment is generally the same, no matter what the trigger is, you're going to use your quick relief medication. And if the symptoms are more severe and we need not responding to the quick relief, medication or the inflammation just seems to be very, very severe, then you'd be put on oral steroids. But again, we'll definitely touch base on all of the treatment-based stuff in the next episode. Okay. Yeah. I feel like that actually sounds like a good place to leave it. So we like entice you guys all in wanting to know more about medication. But before I close this episode... Did we, I just want to make sure if we covered all types of asthma or at least the most common ones. Well, actually almost. Um, there's a, There are also people who have non-allergic asthma, which I mentioned earlier. And those are non-allergic, non-eosinophilic um, asthmatics. And these people 
when severe, it can be really difficult to manage. But I think that asthma research is going on and it's going on in the right direction. And I hope that we'll continue to learn more about these patients. And hopefully by next year, we'll know more and we'll hopefully have more treatment options. So my general hope is that all my patients can have well-controlled asthma, but this can only be accomplished as you've noticed if the doctor knows what's going on. So the bottom line is we need to know your severity level so that we can put you on the right treatment plan. And so if we don't see you, we don't know where you're at. And asthma is a constantly evolving, constantly changing thing. At one point you can be a mild intermittent asthmatic, and then you can transition into a moderate or even a severe persistent asthmatic. So it can change at any point. And the only way that we know where you're at is if you have good follow up so that we can kind of put you on the right medications and get you and bring you back into a point where you're doing better. Yeah. And as a patient, I think that the more you know about your condition, the more empowered you'll be to ensure you're on the right path to staying healthy and to breathing easier, which I know from personal experience, because I like to throw that in, if you haven't noticed, is what I experienced since I've been on a controller. So I'm really glad that we did take this deep dive. And I know that I definitely left knowing and feeling a little bit more confident about what's going on in my system. Thanks, Courtney. Um, Yeah, this was a great episode. And Can't wait for the next one. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.